I'm Hispanic and right now it's especially emotionally tolling for me. It's, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of educating people on how that could have happened and the importance of wearing a mask. I think a hope is that people look at this pandemic and they realize how important public health is. What up world? Welcome to the Amer podcast. We are doing an apocalypse episode today. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have a special guest with us. Her name is Julia Matamoros. She works for Denver Public Health. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm good. I'm all right. You're alive. I'm alive. I got a job. That's yeah. important. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk to us this evening. Really appreciate it. Also with us on the call is Mr. John Kelly in Denver as well. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. It's, it's nice to be back. Um, I know we've taken a little bit of time off, but um, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, we have another opportunity to make an apocalypse episode. So That's right. And I mean, you know, we were pretty productive last month, so it's okay to take some time off. Today is Thursday. May 28th now, and we're recording this episode at 6.15 p.m., and uh, we're here to talk with Miss Julia about her experience working for Denver Public Health, uh, just understand what's been going on in her work life and her personal life and what what changes she's had to make since the pandemics uh, hit the United States. So uh, without further ado, Miss Julia... Um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a background on yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Julia Matamoris. I, um, worked at Denver health for about a year and a half. And then I transitioned over to Denver public health a couple months ago, actually back in November. And I have a, a bachelor's degree in psychology from DU and I'm currently getting a master's degree in counseling at Regis University. Um, so I have my master's from DU Go Pios. Um, yeah, I, I, it's surprising to uh, when I talk to people and they realize that I don't have a degree in public health, and yet I am in the middle of, of a pandemic working in public health, so that's been pretty interesting. How long were you at Denver Health for? At Denver Health, I was there for a year and a half. Uh, okay. a little over a year and a half. Were you doing like along the same lines of work or I guess I should ask what exactly are you doing at your job currently? Yeah. So, at Denver health, I was doing Medicaid enrollment. And so I would just, I was calling people, people would call us and, uh, I'd enroll them in Medicaid, um, all the different programs for Medicaid. And then when I transitioned to public health, uh, I started working in cardiovascular uh, diseases. Okay. I was screening people out in the community. So um, shelters, food banks, anything like that was just screening people for their cholesterol, glucose, triglycerides, um, anything that would be an indicator for a heart disease. And then now, currently, I am doing case investigations, which is very similar to contact tracing. 
Um, so once uh, the pandemic hit in Colorado, I think it was uh, March. So actually, March yeah. March 16th is when uh, we had to stop working in the office. And at that point, I didn't really have a job for a week, basically. They said, you can't go to homeless shelters. You can't go to food banks. So just sit and wait. And then the following week, which must have been the 20-something, 22nd, maybe 21st, is when they told me that I was being put into the epidemiology team and doing case investigation. So figuring out if this situation is a cluster, an outbreak, is really important for public health. Because then we can narrow down... um, we can narrow down if it's a factory. I mean, finding out the King, you know, King Super's packaging factory was a cluster. Different facilities where a lot of people are at, trying to make sure that we can contain it. So that's what I do at at my job right now. Currently, that's not what I was uh, trained to do when I first started this right. this path in public health, though. So what's that include really just when you hear that there's a, are you like investigating that business or are people calling you and you're calling them after you find out that they're sick or how does. Great question. So I call the person who is positive for COVID. And when we first started calling people, it was mostly, mostly nurses, doctors, people in the medical field as well as people who were at risk, uh, so at high risk, so people in long-term care facilities. And then that was like the first couple weeks of when COVID hit Denver. It was mostly healthcare providers. So, Yeah, I can imagine. They've been super hard hit. I mean, that's where the majority of well, us in our state have been, are yeah. long-term care. Yeah, I think I, I think I heard there's 300 dead and 60,000 sick just in healthcare workers alone. So when I first started case investigations, I was mostly calling people nurses who actually already kind of knew they already had an inclination that they were positive for COVID. So the work has changed throughout these couple months. So when I first started, it was calling them saying, hey, you're positive for COVID. It was usually a nurse, some type of provider. Um, They'd say, "Okay, I know I kind of had a feeling. What do I do now? And then as a case investigator, I say, okay, where do you work? Who were you in contact with that was high risk? Does your supervisor know? And also, what is your uh, email address? Because as a case investigator, um, through public health, we have to send out a letter that says that you need to stay isolated. And this letter gets sent to them that has details of what they can and cannot do. And if they get caught, I mean, this hasn't happened, but if if you were to get caught, uh, like hanging out at a park while you're positive for COVID, you could get ticketed. Sure. I mean, yeah. that doesn't really happen because like, how, how do you know if someone's positive for COVID? You don't really know. Right. That was when I first started. And then throughout the process, throughout the months, it's been more, uh, I mean, right now it's mostly Hispanic people. We're mostly, I'm mostly calling Latinos. But yeah, throughout the week really? and months, you've just, I've been noticing that at first it was healthcare providers. And then it was like, uh, it was a lot of people working in the food industry is what I noticed after that. And then after that, it was a lot of people in factories. And now we're getting into a lot of people who are just like 
normal people who don't work in that field. That's, that is really fascinating how you kind of see it clustered in different industries where it's like one or two people might bring it. Of course, the healthcare community makes a lot of sense for it to kind of kick yeah. off there and blow up there, but then it kind of reaches its way out into these other communities that are farther away and not so connected with that healthcare community right off the bat, but you do see that spread. That's really, that is really interesting. I do have a question. Um, when you were talking about the letters you were sending it out, is that just to the individual or are you sending it out to their uh, place of business to... to let them know that there might be people that are have co other people in the business that might have COVID, something like that. Yeah. So when we first started doing these calls, um, we we had to outreach to a boss, a supervisor, um, airline. I had to, had to contact an <laughs> airline to let them know that wow. flight so and so had someone who was positive. And then it started getting way too overwhelming and our numbers started increasing. We were only a team of, at that time, it was a team of 10 people. So it was just, it was impossible to, to outreach to the higher ups. So we started saying, listen, it's a civil duty. Please contact your supervisor. Please contact so-and-so and let them know that they're positive or that you're positive. Um, but I do get some people who don't want to tell me where they work. Um, and in that case, yeah. it's sent to my supervisor and my supervisor contacts their place of work. So if someone, if it seems like someone is being resistant on wanting to disclose that information, um, it gets sent to someone higher up. Um, and then when it comes to like factories and things like that, that's on the hands of our supervisors. Um, so when something yeah. is escalated, we hand it off to them because we got to keep taking the calls. So, yeah, that, I mean that that makes total sense, and I could see how in in certain industries there could be a lot of hesitancy from certain employees, um, especially if you're talking about um, the Latino community. There could be undocumented workers that are, you know, scared of being deported under our certain federal standards that we have, um, unfortunately, due to our president. Um, but, you know, um, overall, have you seen a lot of hes uh, hesitancy and resistance or does it seem like most people are uh, willing to cooperate, you know, do their civic duty and, and be part of the solution to stop the spread? I would say it's a 50-50. Unfortunately, wow. when we first started calling people um, and it was people in the medical field, definitely. They were super compliant, super okay with it. And they're like, hey, can I forward this letter to my supervisor? And I'd be like, yeah, that's perfect. Because then it shows how many days the county is requiring you to stay isolated. And the more we get down the line, the more it's people being like, because now we also ask, like, who is someone who is at high risk that you were in contact with? What is their name, their first name, last name and phone number? And people have not been loving that. <laughs> I could see that. It's well, also kind yeah. of like an ethos a little bit in Colorado. There's still kind of like that Wild West ethos where people are like, I don't want to tell anybody anything. I'm like fiercely independent. Right? It's that kind of libertarian yeah. strain a little bit. So I, I mean, I could see that. Yeah. That makes sense. You said your team was at 10 people originally. What's, has it grown? It has. It has grown. Not by much. Okay. So you guys are, aren't overwhelmed. You're handling the work. All right. Yeah. There are uh, about 
17 to 20 of us now. Okay, so you've doubled. So we've doubled, but the cases from when it started have, yeah. I mean, they've tripled. They've, they haven't just doubled. When, when we started, yeah. we were getting about a hundred, less than a hundred cases a day. It was like 50 cases a day, 60 cases a day, and that's manageable. But now it's getting to like 180 cases a day, 250 cases a day. So right. they did attempt to onboard a lot of people, but they actually got switched over to contact tracing. So, okay. which are two different entities. So they tried to onboard people on our team and then contact tracers. Uh, the head team there was like, wait, we're trying to push this in Colorado, especially in Denver. We're actually going to take those people that you onboarded. So we're having a little bit of difficulty, uh, being able to onboard people, especially because um, the hiring process, it, it, it's a process and that takes time. And yeah. trying to do that within a couple days is really difficult and trying to make sure that it's people who are, who are reliable and who understand like HIPAA, all of that. So it, it's complicated. It gets complicated when you're onboarding people into public health while there's a pandemic. Yeah. I think I think you're seeing that kind of everywhere. I know that in certain news uh, outlets, uh, especially when it comes to talking about the economic impacts of of the virus to this point, a lot of them are saying, "Hey, you know, the medical community always needs people, right? They're they're pushing it pretty hard, and while there is a a real need to do it in a lot of areas, um, and, and public health certainly one of them. I'm also thinking nursing jobs um, and just kind of support in general for. Uh, populations that are at risk um so people who volunteer with the elderly per se but you know there is that kind of intense hiring process where you really do need a certain set of skills to be able to accomplish parts of the job and it takes a while to figure out if somebody's going to actually be able to do that um <laughs> it's a lot different than say hiring someone for a warehouse job moving packages so yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah um i would say even like the emotional piece of it I was just going to ask, like, how is it calling people and telling them that they're sick it, or that they could become sick? It's really difficult. When I first started, it was, like I said, medical uh, people in the medical field. So it, it really wasn't that hard. They already kind of had a feeling that they were going to be sick. Um, not a big deal. They know how to take care of themselves. So um, that was okay. It's... Right now, I, I'm Hispanic, and right now, it's especially emotionally tolling for me, um, just because I'm calling, uh, there's not a lot of people on our team who are fluent in Spanish, and so um, I'm calling a lot of people who are Spanish only, Spanish-speaking only, and it's not only telling them that they're positive for COVID, and how to take care of themselves, but it's education on how they could have gotten sick because they might be watching TV, but if the TV doesn't translate correctly, they don't really know how they could have gotten sick. Um, yeah. yeah I, I had a woman who, yeah, I'm not going to get into it, but it's, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of educating people on how yeah. that could have happened and the importance of wearing a mask. So that's been very yeah. emotionally tolling. Um, 
I am actually currently in Arkansas because I went through a very uh, depressive state a couple weeks ago and my boyfriend was just noticing that I, I wasn't taking care of myself. So he drove out very safely, drove out to Denver to come pick me up. And I'm actually here because it was, it was taking a massive toll on my, on my psyche. Were you living alone? Did you have roommates? What was your, your situation like for support? And- I, I live alone. Um, I have a dog, but I, that's, there's only so much you can say to your dog. Um, and they not respond back. Um, it's true. My cat thinks I'm insane right now. I talk to a hundred times a day. He just looks at me and he's like, why are you still here? I thought you left why the house. Sometimes. <laughs> so it, yeah, I, I was alone. And when I first, when everything first started in Denver, I mean, I started doing the contact tracing, I'm sorry, the uh, case investigations and, my supervisor was also very much like, Hey, if the hospital needs you, if something, if like shit really hits the ban and the hospital needs you, you need to be, you need to be safe and you need to be healthy. So you, you need to stay inside as much as possible and take care of yourself. So I was really not in contact with anyone like at all. I would say hi to my neighbors from afar and that was it. And other than that, I was just calling people every single day, telling them that they were positive. And some people, some people react really, I shouldn't say poorly because that's, that's mean, but some people were really taken aback yeah. by their results. And so it was, yeah. I'm very thankful that I have a counseling background and there were a lot of points, there are a lot of points that I use my counseling background to de-escalate people, to explain like, hey, this isn't a death sentence. Um, I've had to use that term multiple times. Like, this isn't a death sentence. You can get through this. You need to take a deep breath with me. And I'm going to walk you through what steps you're going to have to take to keep your family safe. So having to do that every single day, it, my psyche was just declining and it was just time to to take care of myself on your psychology background i remember when you went was it puerto rico Mm -hmm. uh yeah when you volunteered and went to puerto rico after hurricane maria and i know that you you volunteered your time down there to help people psychologically through the disaster how would you say like the emotion compares to this, like, do you, does it feel like a similar disaster it, or like a disaster of the, of that degree? That is a great question. I would say, <laughs> I would, I would say it's similar in the sense that there is a really deep feeling of, um, of like despair and like uh, a feeling like uh, some of the people that I talk to now feeling like they're never going to come out of it. Having to say, this isn't a death sentence. Um, That feeling of like, I'm I'm never going to be able to overcome this. That's similar to doing the psychological first aid that I did in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. But it's different because... (coughs) This is a virus and 
there are things that can be preventable. And so I can hear it in people's voice sometimes when I talk to them, that there is a feeling of guilt. Um, Mm. I've had multiple people who live with their um, elderly parents um, who are in their thirties who say, okay, so I'm positive for, for coronavirus. Are my parents going to get it too? And I have to be very, I have to be very honest with people. I'm not going to lie to someone. So I have to be very honest and say, unfortunately it's a high likelihood that they already have it and they're going to start showing symptoms soon or that they're going to get it at some point very soon. And so when I say that, I can hear it in their voice after, after I say that, that there's a feeling of guilt and with a hurricane, there really isn't that attached to it. When there's a disaster, a natural disaster, there isn't really a feeling of like, this is my fault. Um, and so with a virus, there is a feeling of it, of it's my fault. And I, I do a lot of, um, a lot of deescalating and trying to explain to people that yes, yes, they could have done things differently. And I'm really sorry that you're going through this, but moving forward, because all you can do at this point is, is think about the future. Now you need to start wearing a mask so that you don't get anyone else sick. So, um, it's similar but different from other disasters. Yeah. Still sounds just as intense. It cer- it certainly does, and I, I think that's really fascinating to like, think about it in comparison to other types of disasters and how they affect people mentally. I know that when when I've been watching what's unfolded over the last couple of months, it it has almost seemed to me that certain people are dealing with it almost as if it's a different stage of grief in the process. Right. Some react really strongly with anger, some guilt, some kind of acceptance eventually. But it's just kind of a, a feeling that I've got seeing a lot of different groups and their reaction is that it's, it's almost like the stages of grief, but they're dealing with it. They're almost stuck on certain steps of it without getting to the acceptance point, which is that, hey, we're all in this together. Wear your masks, wash your hands and do what's best for yourself and for your community, for your family. And, you know, hopefully we'll all be able to get through this together. And, you know, we don't have to have that heavy sense of guilt that we're continuing to spread it and push it out farther into our communities to vulnerable people. And I think another aspect, you know, that you that you talked about was certainly the the mental health aspect. And and you talked about how you were dealing with uh, yourself. That's a kind of another aspect that we like to bring in during these episodes is just kind of. well, one, obviously, how you've been dealing with it, but two, just general advice you have for other people about how they might be able to, you know, keep their spirits up, uh, you know, whether that's uh, psychological stuff or just fun stuff you've been doing that might jolt somebody else's idea about, you know, still being stuck indoors and at home during a quarantine. Yeah, I mean, everyone copes to crisis, trauma, and loss in a different way. And, um, I'm a very active person. Um, I would say notice, notice your good habits and really make sure that they're good habits and not turning into bad habits. Um, when I was still in Denver, I was running 10, 11, 12 miles, like every other day, almost every day. And I was doing it thinking to myself, like, I need to do self-care. I need to take care of myself. I need to go on a run. And I, 
I'm, it was my boyfriend who pointed out like, this isn't really self care. You know, like if, if you're impacting your body like this, it's, is it really self care? And so making sure that your, your self care is actually self care and you're not pushing yourself to like unbearable limits. Um, the other thing is, like I said, I mean, everyone copes differently. Um, and just, I've been seeing a lot of things on social media that keep saying like, um, if you didn't, uh, if you're not learning a new habit while in quarantine, it's not that you lacked, uh, time. It's that you lack motivation. And yeah, I don't, I don't like that. It's <laughs> such, it's such a slap in the face to people. It, it yeah. really, it really truly is a slap in the face because everyone copes differently. And we're in a situation that's very unique and just because I have more time right now doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm going to learn how to sew because my mind is preoccupied with the fact that people are, people are passing away and we're in a really stressful time. So showing compassion to yourself and not letting things on social media make you think that, that you're worse than you are for not learning new things and making banana bread like you don't have to do that to be agreed agreed and and we're not and we're not saying that if you feel proud about it you yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't put it out there because for some people that's really therapeutic in its own right i know that people people chase likes and we could we could argue the benefits or <laughs> negativity that surrounds that but you shouldn't you shouldn't actively rub it in other people's faces that exactly not not doing something. Something. yeah exactly totally agree yeah because yeah. everyone copes different and yeah. this is, I, I believe that this is crisis, trauma, and loss. I think it's all three. Yeah, and, and I feel that the psychological effects will probably last quite a bit longer than the virus does. In what ways, I'm not sure, but... Yeah. I, I, Especially I, for know, the people who lose, lose close loved ones, yeah. for sure, 100%. But yeah. I, I chased, agree. chased by guilt, even possibly, you know, so definitely. So not to overdo it, take this time to 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 just for yourself and to heal and, and think about what you need personally and not to run yourself into the ground, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> so and I, I don't know, I got a few closing questions for you and that. You know, if you're not comfortable with sharing your opinion on certain subjects or entities, no pressure. But <laughs> how <laughs> do you have an opinion on the situation, the pandemic and how it's being handled? Um, and, and I'm curious nationally, locally. I don't know what's going on in Arkansas. It's curious. Yeah. So um, I'm only going to speak on my own behalf. Yeah. But I think that. Well, first in, in Arkansas, the numbers are pretty low. Um, they're starting to, they're starting to grow, um, because of Memorial day. Uh, a lot of people were out in Lake of the Ozarks and, um, doing all that partying. So, and, and I have, I haven't checked, but they, they were lower than like, uh, cases in Alabama or Mississippi and certainly lower than Texas. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure. I think the number in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago was like 178 deaths. So very low in comparison to a lot of states, um, which is interesting to, to it's interesting to work for Denver 
and be in a place where there are low numbers because my heart aches at the end of every workday. And then I see people around here and not a lot of masks, not a lot of, you know, uh, social distancing. And so it's, it's weird. Um, of course, like I, I still do my part and continue to social distance and continue to wear my mask and continue to use hand sanitizer when I touch basically anything. Um, but that is very interesting to, to see the difference. The numbers are rising here. So, um, that's, have you found any good, uh, hand lotions? Uh, I, <laughs> I know that hand sanitizing your hands just all day. They just leave them cracked. My brother complains about it cause he works at a bank. I He's haven't, so I haven't found any that work for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sh- shameless plug, uh, soul salve actually makes some great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to mail you some, some salve, some hand salve. Yeah, seriously. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, I guess it's just, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking because you, uh, especially I'm 27. So, um, it's bizarre to see socially how some of my friends take this very, very seriously. And there are some people that I know who do not take it seriously at all. And are still um, still gathering in large numbers. Um, I saw someone have a DJ set the other night, which was like <laughs> on, on Instagram, and I was just like, "What wow. is up with that?" So yeah. um, it. I think I think a lot of people are dealing with that, especially people who who take it seriously and understand the consequences. Yeah, I know. I've I've felt that too. I've tried to not allow myself to get too angry about it because I know that it's not helpful at the end of the day, but it's yeah. hard not to sometimes when you see stuff like that, when you're taking it so seriously and you see other people yeah. and I mean, wanting the, the, the public guidance about it just, yeah. just so they can be like, ah, oh, well I got to go out and do this. And you're like, cool. Yeah. It's just so difficult because I, I'm not going to be that person who is like on social media at all points telling everyone to like stay indoors. Like, be scared of this. Like that's, that's not who I am at heart. And also that's not how you, that's not how you deliver a message. Well, that's just not how people don't react well to that. So, um, it's very, it's hard, um, to see how people react to it. And I wish that I could be like, listen, if you had to call people every single day and have to tell them this news, and then they inform you that their parents live at home with them. Like you would, you would take this seriously too. And, and it would break your heart too. And, and please stop having DJ sets. But, but I <laughs> you could do that just as fun. I mean, it's, the, of course the sound's not going to be as good, but do it over your computer. You could still hang out in your home and, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But just carrots to dance yeah. better. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see socially people's reactions to it. Um, as for the Latino population, I, uh, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm sad. Um, it feels like there is not enough being done for that population. Um, it feels like the information isn't being translated correctly 
It feels like mm. it's not going out to all the communities in Denver County. And that is really frustrating. And um, it makes me feel really? really small because I, oh, we're the ones who have to call these people and, and then have to educate them too. So sometimes we end up talking to some people for an hour, hour, 10 minutes and I've got a list of so many people that I have to call, and yet I have to educate people when that is not my job, um, and that is really frustrating and it's heartbreaking. And so, uh, socially, uh, I like with with the county, I'm pretty frustrated with that. And yeah, it's it's just it's a lack of it's a lack of information to that to those communities. Do you think that perhaps we could get better information? Maybe if we got some nonprofits involved, why isn't that? Why isn't there better information? There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to that. Um, one, translating. Are you making sure that it's being translated correctly? Because um, if you put it into Google, it's not going to translate it well, um, and people are not going to yeah. understand that. So, one, translating correctly. Two. Um, a lot of these populations are low socioeconomic status. So people who don't have access to a computer, who don't have access to the internet, um, who are low, uh, like who are uh, low education. So are they able to read? That's yeah. really important. It ta- yeah, it takes twice to three times as long to just get people through the regular facts if if they are lower on the education scale in terms of, of their understanding. For, for exactly. Sure. exactly. So it's, it's all of that. Um, it's social economic status, it's education, it's, uh, resources. Um, a lot of the communities that, uh, I work with, cause normally, I mean, normally I'm going to, I'm going to food banks and I'm going to homeless shelters and I'm going to, um, you know, different locations to do cardiovascular testing, which I think is great that Denver public health does that where they get someone to go out into the community to do it. And that is very, very useful and manageable for some of these communities. But now we can't go into the community and they can't even gather. So how do you get this information out in a way that they can understand it? Yeah. sounds like we have some work to do there because you know, we just can't let anybody fall behind with this pandemic. We're like Kelly, you said earlier, we're all in this together. So, so I guess closing questions, uh, on a positive note, do you have any thing that you're looking forward to or dreams, hopes, aspirations, or personal goals right now? Um, something that's kind of helping you move forward. Yeah get through this or what what's going on personally what's helping me get through it is my significant other um being able to have someone to talk to and he doesn't understand the work um but at the end of the day he's making me dinner and i really appreciate that and i i'm very thankful and i'm very uh, lucky um hopes and dreams um I've been thinking a lot about that. I think a hope is that people look at this pandemic and they realize how important public health is. 
Um, and even for myself, um, I've always known that public health is important and we need it. Um, but I've never realized how much it does to our community. I mean, public health is the organization that puts safe sidewalks in our communities. Public health is the one who was able to push uh, for not smoking indoors in right. public places. In, yeah. Indoor indoor plumbing. It basically like I, I'm a, I'm a history buff and I uh, <laughs> history and so like like even in the early 20th century, right with the progressive movement, so many public health initiatives shaped what we consider to be a modern society. Even down to like yeah. indoor plumbing stops people from getting ringworm in there. Yeah. They basically knocked out. <laughs> Totally. Uh, like endemic ringworm in the South over like one generation just because they did indoor plumbing and told everybody yeah. to have indoor plumbing. Which is, yeah. which is, we don't think about public health being so important, and it is. And it is what makes our communities function well and make it safe for us. And so I, my hope is that more people realize the importance of public health and we get more people who starts studying public health because it's rad and it helps our community function well. And yeah, I, I think that out of all of this, that's the biggest hope that I have is that more people study public health and um, I don't know, like pay, pay more attention to what they're saying because Yes, smokers might be like, well, we, you know, it sucks we can't smoke inside, but it's like a whole tumble effect. It's, it's full circle. And so that is my hope that more people study public health and, and pay attention to it. Right. And just it increases overall awareness of, yeah. of your own personal health. I, I, I agree with you. I hope people get that out of this as well. So it's a great lesson to learn. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Kelly, do you have any, any more questions? No more questions. I'd just like to say thank you for all you do for the community of Colorado. You know, you probably yes. don't you don't probably don't hear it because you do phone calls all day. But thank you for putting <laughs> the time in and helping people. I appreciate you appreciating me because I don't hear very often. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I I've actually been waiting to get you on the podcast since Hurricane Maria, but. but uh, uh, as well another time we can definitely talk about that because that was a whole thing in itself (laughs) thank you so much for having me awesome well keller thank you so much for joining us uh really really appreciate you taking the time and thank you listeners for tuning in hope you found this episode fascinating as fascinating as i did uh hopefully it sheds some light on the seriousness of what's going on on a professional level so yes take take care of yourselves and your community uh leave us a comment if you want ask us questions that you'd like to hear answered um either from ourselves or from our guests we can try to reach out to them as well um we want this to be a community of people talking so please let us know what you like what you don't like yeah thanks for listening cool godspeed